0: Well, good morning. Um, I just thought we'd start out by talking about our favorite TV shows. My favorite TV show right now is called Hometown. And for those of you who aren't, okay, some of us are nodding, we're familiar, yes. Okay, for those of you that aren't familiar, think Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines, but in a small southern town with a Mississippi drawl. So it's super cute. And the basic premise is that a young couple living in small town Mississippi was tired of seeing their home fall into neglect. They were tired of seeing old houses dilapidated, their main street boarded up, and the city parks just falling into disrepair. And so Aaron started a blog called Make Something Good Today, and they decided to start a campaign to highlight the good and the beautiful in their town. And soon they found themselves restoring old, forgotten, historic homes. Now their philosophy for design is what I particularly love. They go in and they look at the bones of the house and they say, what is already good here? What is beautiful? What is true? And then they strip away everything else that detracts from the good. And so together, the Napiers take the neglected, worn-out homes and restore them again to vibrancy and to life in a way that respects what the home was, but gives space for new life and flourishing to take place. And one of the reasons I love these home renovation shows so much is because I see a little bit of myself in them. And I often cry at the episodes, and Jason will come home and go, were you watching Hometown again? And I'll go, yes. And he doesn't get it, but that's okay. Because like these homes, I long to see restoration in my life. And I know I'm not alone in that desire. Don't we all desire to see the hard and the broken and the forgotten places of our lives torn out to reveal the good, the true, and the beautiful Don't we all want to have someone come in and just remake us in such a way that it feels like a place of life and flourishing? See, shows like these are successful because they tap into our universal longing to see the broken made beautiful. So what about you? What today in your life needs redeeming? Where do you long to see a new chapter added to your story? Where do you hunger to see a reversal of events or to see the redemption that only God can bring? For some of you, you might be walking through divorce or the betrayal of a friend or the loneliness of coming home to a house that you thought surely by now it would be full. For others of you, it might be the loss of a job, a life altering diagnosis or daily prejudices that you face. There is so much in life that is not as it should be. And you may have even found yourself thinking, you know, I don't want to be a character in this story anymore. It's a painful story. It doesn't seem like a good story. And the author is MIA. Where are you, God? And friends, we're not alone in asking those questions. The Jewish people in Esther's day were asking the very same questions. God, where are you? What are you doing? And will you show up for us today? Will you bring deliverance? And so as we conclude the book of Esther today, we're gonna examine our own life stories in light of God's redemptive story, in light of his provision. And this is the truth And the main point that I want you to go home with today, wherever you find yourself in your story, God is with you and God is for you. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Esther, let's pick up our story. We saw in chapter seven that Haman was impaled on his own pole. And then in chapter eight, we see that Xerxes gives Haman's estate to Esther. Esther gives it to Mordecai. And now in Xerxes' mind, the whole ordeal with the Jewish people is finished. He's satisfactorily resolved it, and he's moving on as he well pleases. But Esther is not yet satisfied. It isn't enough to just secure safety for herself and for Mordecai. She wants safety and deliverance for her entire people, for the Jewish people. And so Esther presents herself once again before the king. He graciously extends his scepter, and she proceeds. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they've impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, and do what seems best to you. Seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can be revoked. So here's what's happening. This new edict now allows the Jewish people to defend themselves on the planned day of annihilation. Instead of being mass murdered by their neighbors, the Jewish people can now defend themselves against anyone who attacks them. And we've spent a lot of time studying the characters of Esther and Mordecai, but we haven't necessarily gotten into the mindset of the Jewish people. And so I'd like you to imagine that you're one of the Jewish people who has not yet heard the good news of the second edict. Your grandparents' home in Israel was destroyed. They were taken captive, they were put in chains, and they were dumped in this foreign place called Persia. You were born in Susa, but it's still not home because you don't feel like you belong. No one else worships the one true God that you worship. No one understands the food you eat and the cultural practices and the festivals that you have. No one speaks the same language that you do. And everywhere you go, you're mocked and ridiculed for being different, for being an outsider. And as if that weren't traumatic enough, the crazy king issued an edict two months ago that on a certain day coming up, your neighbors can free will kill you. Imagine the anxiety and the fear that would be bubbling up in their hearts because you haven't done anything to deserve this. No one has. Where in the world is God? Where is God in a situation like this? So let's just pause right there. Can you feel the desperate longing? Can you feel the desire for someone to come in and save the day? to somehow redeem the seemingly impossible circumstances. You know, and I believe at this point that some of the Jewish people probably gave up. They probably gave into hopelessness and despair because where was God? Was he going to show up? But we see that there were also faithful men and women like Mordecai who didn't give into despair and who didn't give up and who continued to trust in God. God. Why? Because they personally knew this truth. God is with you, even when you cannot see his face. God is with you, even when you cannot see his face. And I think the God with us part is fairly easy to grasp when life is good. We understand that we're children of God and that we're created to be an intimate relationship with him. And so, when we get that promotion to director at work, we're quick to praise God. When the pathology reports come back that that tumor isn't malignant, our family text thread erupts in praises. When we come home to that warm apartment and there's food in the fridge, we know that it all comes from God and that we are blessed. But what about when life is really tough? Is God still present in challenging circumstances? What about when you get passed over for that promotion? What about when you get that pathology report and the tumor is malignant? What about when you're living to paycheck to paycheck and you have to decide between heat and between food? Is God still with you even when you can't see his direct involvement? You see, roughly 1,000 years before the events in the book of Esther, Israel's rebellion had been predicted. And as a result of their disobedience, God told Moses that he would hide his face from his people. As a wise and educated man, I have to imagine that Mordecai knew this. He knew that God's face was hidden from them because of Israel's disobedience. And yet he also knew that they were God's chosen people. He knew that a Jewish king was prophesied who would come, was coming, who would one day bring peace and reign over the whole earth. Mordecai knew of the death of the decreed death of his people, and yet he also knew that God would deliver his people. In other words, Mordecai knew that God was with his people, even though they couldn't see his face. I hope you caught this, that Mordecai didn't know how or in what way the deliverance would come. He didn't even know if he and Esther would survive the ordeal. But Mordecai did know that God would deliver his people because our God is trustworthy and he always keeps his promises. That's why Mordecai was able to say with absolute certainty to Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, will perish. Sisters, one of the great themes of the Bible is God's promise to be with his people. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you can live confidently knowing that nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God. And so when those difficulties come, here are just a few quick passages to call to mind to remember that God is with you. The first one that I want to highlight is Genesis 39. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. God was with Joseph even when Joseph was sold into slavery, betrayed by his family, taken from the promised land, falsely accused, and thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. God was with Joseph, even when Joseph couldn't see his face. Isaiah 43 records God saying to the Jewish nation, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not oversweep you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God was with the Jewish people, even when they couldn't see his face due to their disobedience and rebellion. And finally, in his letters to the Romans, the apostle Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? To which we respond, no, nothing can separate us from the love and the presence of God. God is with us even when we can't see his face due to trials and suffering. So to give you a personal example, uh, back in 2018, I was at a friend's lake house. And I was processing and reflecting on the really deeply painful circumstances I found myself in. It was a dreary, stormy day, very similar to today, and so I decided to take a nap. But when I woke up, the sky was bright blue, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and the sunlight was streaming in through the window. And I remember just marveling at the quick change of weather, just like that. And I said something to Jason like, wow, can you imagine, just in the length of a nap, it can go from stormy to sunny. Now that may say something about the length of my naps, which are quite long. But in that moment, as I was looking out that beautiful plate glass window, I felt God whisper to my soul, Tiffany, there won't always be storms. One day the clouds will part and the sun will come shining through. And I took that as hope to my weary heart. I knew it wasn't scripture, and I knew it wasn't a promise that a particular outcome would result. But I did sense God's reassurance that there would come a day when life circumstances would be a little less stormy and a little more sunny. When it would be easier to see God's work and his good presence in my life. And so I got this tattoo on my arm in honor of David, that among other things depicts the sun breaking through the clouds because I needed to physically see and tangibly remind myself that God is with me even when I cannot see his face, that the sun is still present even when the clouds obscure it, that there is always hope, and that God invites me to find him trustworthy. So where right now in your own life is God inviting you to trust him? Maybe his face seems hidden or it's hard to discern his will. Or perhaps the situation just seems completely irredeemable. And you have no idea how God could ever show up in this situation and bring healing. But sisters... Hang on, because the good news is coming, because our God is in the business of making beautiful that which was once smoldering ashes. So going back to the Jewish people in our story, I find it interesting that they had to wait two excruciating months before they received the good news that they longed to hear. Two months with a death threat hanging over their head. And notice that when they received that good news, the planned day of a national elation was still coming. They weren't spared the trial and the suffering, but they were assured hope. They were assured a means of deliverance. They now had a plan. And consider this, from the time of King Xerxes, um, when he first hosted his banquet and demanded Queen Vashti to appear before him until the second edict, it was 10 years, 10 years that God has been working behind the scenes, orchestrating the salvation of his people. Now, what does all this prove? It proves that God was at work and present and fulfilling his promise to deliver his people even though the Jewish people couldn't necessarily see his face or trace his hand all throughout that time period. And sisters, in your own life, sometimes the telling of your story takes a long time. You're in the middle of it, and sometimes the telling of it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes years and the perspective that only time can bring until you can look back and say, there. There was God working all things for good. There was his presence. There was his provision. There was his providence. God was with me during those dark and stormy times. So wherever you find yourself in the story, God is with you and God is for you. Which leads us to our second point today. God is for you and he is working all things for your good. Well, let's be a little honest. It's hard to reconcile some of the things that take place in the book of Esther with God's goodness, particularly the 75,000 plus people that the Jews killed on the planned day of annihilation. It doesn't seem very good. And while I have neither the expertise nor the time to dive into the concept of holy war, I want you to be assured that there are biblical scholars who have devoted their entire careers to studying this topic. And if you'd like to do additional research, your leaders have a recommended list of resources. And can I encourage you as one of your pastors, do the hard work of asking the hard questions. As you are going through the study, if there are questions that you wrestle with, that you struggle with, lean in because God is strong enough and his word is strong enough to withstand the scrutiny. And when we ask those hard questions, it strengthens our faith and it grows us in our relationship with God. So briefly, let's talk about holy war, specifically in the book of Esther. As modern readers, many of us are appalled that the only solution to the planned day of annihilation was for the Jews to respond with equal force and violence. But I'd like you to remember that this is a historical book. And therefore, a lot of what is written is descriptive, not prescriptive. The author isn't saying, in such and such situation, do X, Y, and Z. He's merely recording like a historian, this happened, this happened, then this happened. So Holy War takes place in the Old Testament. And it can be briefly described as an act of God's judgment carried out by God through his people. Holy war is an act of judgment carried out by God through his people. And so because this holy war is initiated by God, the Israelites were not to take any plunder or to in any way enrich themselves through this act. Now, what does that have to do with the Jewish people in Esther? Well, roughly 1,000 years prior to Haman's edict, the Amalekites a foreign tribe, had attacked Israel on the way to the promised land. And so God had told Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from the heavens. And then 400 years after that, the Israelites were settled in the promised land. And so God called the Amalekites to judgment. He called King Saul to completely wipe them out. But King Saul did what he thought best, and he spared King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And as a result of that, King Agag's descendants were known as the Agagites. And if you think back to Esther, because you're all good Bible scholar students, and you've been writing down your observations, how is Haman described? As an Agagite. Agagite. Over and over again, the author wants us to know that he is a descendant of Amalek. And apparently, these people did not like the Jews. They have borne a particular hatred towards the Jews for over 600 years. And so with the holy war history in mind, let's just pick back up our story and explore how God was able to redeem a seemingly irredeemable situation and also bring good from it. So look with me in Esther 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict (laughs) commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overcome them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Chapter 9 goes on to detail how the Jews Succeeded. No one could stand against them. The authorities and government officials partnered with them in their self defense. The Jewish people struck down all their enemies, including Haman's ten sons. And the author mentions not once but twice that the Jewish people did not take any plunder, even though the second edict gave them permission to. Ultimately, on this day, the Jewish people got relief from their enemies. And this is significant because we see God's covenant promise fulfilled over and over and over again to redeem, to deliver, to provide for the Israelites. God was for the Israelites. Now we've seen a lot of reversals in Esther, haven't we? We've seen a Jewish exile be promoted to the place of queen. We've seen Mordecai take Haman's place at court. We've seen Mordecai uh, given Haman's estate. We've even seen Haman executed on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. So many things in this story have been reversed. But the most significant reversal in this story is the fact that the Jewish people went from being victims to victors. One scholar writes about this reversal It's not simply the idea that the plot was canceled. The plot was reversed so that the evil that had been launched was turned back again. What had appeared to be a victory for evil was not merely averted and instead became a victory for good. And sisters, that is our God, the God of reversals. God proved himself faithful. He proved that he was for the Israelites and working all things for good but what about you and I today in 2020? How do we know that God is for us today and that he is working all things for our good? We face sin and evil and brokenness on both a personal and a global scale every day. And many days it can seem overwhelming. It can seem that God is slow in coming or maybe he's not even going to respond at all. So where is God Well, he is in the midst of your pain and your brokenness and your mess. He is Jesus on the cross and he has proved once and for all by his death and resurrection that he is for us and he is working all things for good. One of my favorite quotes is this, you can trust the man who died for you. And the Apostle Paul backs this up when he writes about the greatest reversal ever to take place in human history. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So great is God's love for us that thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we are now reconciled to God the Father. We now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And that means that we who are once dead to sin are now alive in Christ. And so we don't have to fear the future anymore because there is no future where God is not present We don't have to live in anxiety anymore because we know that God will take care of us. He will provide for us. We don't have to walk in shame any longer because we have been forgiven. And we don't have to hide our true selves because we are fully accepted. You see, when the overwhelming love of God shows up in your life, you cannot remain the same. His with you, his for you kind of love changes you. It changes everything everything. Look with me at Esther chapter 8, verse 15. After receiving the news that they could defend themselves, the city of Susa exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated, they were honored. It was that way all over the country, in every province, every city. When the king's bulletin was posted, the Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. A people who were as good as dead have now received life. And so they did the only thing that you can do in such a circumstance. They rejoiced. They celebrated the reversal of their fate, their soon coming victory, their deliverance, and ultimately the provision of our good God. By this point in the story, the Jews had learned that God was with them, even when they couldn't see his face. And they'd also learn that God was for them and working all things for good. And now they learned a third lesson. God invites you to rejoice in him. Think about it. When the Jewish people received relief from their enemies, they immediately started celebrating. They instituted Purim as a spontaneous response to God's faithfulness to his covenant people. And multiple times the author characterizes the Jewish people as celebrating with joy. Why? Because deliverance brings rejoicing. News of your salvation changes how you live, and it informs what you live for. It orders the rhythms of your days, it instructs how you raise your children, it informs how you respond when that person cuts you off on the freeway and how you shape your hopes and your priorities for the future. And sisters, I don't know about you, but I want to live as a rejoicing person, as a delivered person. I want to rest in the arms of my savior with all the confidence of a child. I wanna live a life of gratitude and be receptive to God's presence. I want to speak words of truth and life to others. And in short, no matter where I find myself in the story, I want to rejoice in the one who is with me and who is for me. What is it that you want? It's interesting that in Esther chapter nine, verse 31, we find that the Jewish people took the the obligation to feast as seriously as the obligation to fast and weep. And I think both responses are the response of a delivered person. In response, in seasons of fasting and weeping, God's invitation is for you to trust Him, even when you can't see His face. And in seasons of feasting and celebrating, God's invitation is for you to rejoice in Him, because He is working all things for good. And what I love is that God's heart for you is the same in both seasons. Know me. And my love for you, I am with you and for you. And I don't know where you find yourself in your life story, but all of us are somewhere on that spectrum between fasting and feasting. Some of us are longing for God's deliverance. And others of us are joyfully celebrating God's goodness. In all the ups and downs of life, I'm so glad that we know how the story ends. It's never been in question. Like Mordecai, we can live with confidence knowing this. The story was always going to end with God keeping all of his promises, with his people being delivered, and with his enemies being judged. Sisters, wherever you find yourself in the story, God is with you and God is for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are God with us and God for us. Thank you that no matter where we find ourselves, whether in a season of fasting or feasting or somewhere in between, that you are with us. Your invitation is that we might know you and your love. Father, we want to be people of rejoicing, people that live out of the fullness of who you are. As we go forth from this place, Lord, may we be people who live in your love and share that love with others. It's in your name we pray, amen.